I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Ecclesiastes 1. And the guys have Bibles, as they do each week. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll get one of those to you. That's marked for you at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I once heard an evangelist offer several ways to start a conversation about the gospel with an unbeliever. One approach that he gave was to ask the unbeliever a series of questions and then follow up each one with, and then what? So you might ask a young person, what are you going to do when you finish college? And they say, get a job, and you reply, and then what? Well, and then I might get married. And then what? Hopefully have some kids. And then what? I guess I'll retire. And then what? Um, I'll die. And then what? Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that as the most effective evangelistic technique. It may only have the effect of making you annoying to other people. But it does force an important question, which is, what is the ultimate point of all you plan to do in your life? You know, it's amazing how few people actually give thought to the meaning of their lives. Instead, they just live them day by day, perhaps hoping that somehow it will add up to something significant. Or they perhaps do have fleeting thoughts about purpose, but they know they don't have it and perhaps never can. And so they fit the famous description given by Henry David Thoreau. The mass of humanity live lives of quiet desperation. Those who do recognize the problem seek to find meaning in lots of places and ways. In 1993, a national politician famously suggested that what we need most is a, quote, politics of meaning. And after nearly a quarter century of that, most neutral observers will admit that it failed. In fact, an article last year was titled, How the Politics of Meaning Failed Us. And it said, the year before the politics of meaning was popularized, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy's plurality opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which reaffirmed that abortion on demand is a constitutional right, injected into the heart of the politics of meaning the fateful proposition that all meaning is personal. Kennedy said this, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. And in his grave, Antonin Scalia is saying, say what? Let me repeat that. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe. You get to define your own concept of the universe and of the mystery of human life. Getting this wrong has dire consequences, both for individuals and for society. The author of that article on the failure of the politics of meaning concluded, we need to recover what the personal politics of meaning nearly took away. We need to feel fixed and durable and clear. We need to feel as though things that are bigger than ourselves matter. When individual meaning and truth are held forth as the ultimate prize of the self, 
Is it any wonder that many Americans search for and find this meaning in the wrong place? And if you look in the wrong place long enough, it leads to despair like that spoken of by Shakespeare's Macbeth. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It, life, is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. One poet who saw the problem penned these words, Most men move about here and there, eat and drink, chatter and love and hate, gather and squander, are raised aloft and hurled in the dust, striving blindly, achieving nothing, and then they die. Or in bumper sticker terminology, life's a mess and then you die. Well, I'm so very glad that I could cheer you all up today. (laughs) But the reason that I've started this way is because today we begin a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. A book that we went through as a church 11 years ago. For those who were with us back then, it may not seem like that long, but indeed it was. And Ecclesiastes offers a realistic view of human life apart from God. Notice how it begins in verse 2 of chapter 1. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But of course, the Bible never leaves us in despair, but instead lifts our hearts to see beyond the meaninglessness of life apart from God To see what life was made to be like with and by God. So the title of this series is How to Find Meaning in a Meaningless World. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we begin. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to be with your people in your presence and opening your word. We ask you then, Lord, to speak to us from your word, the wisdom that comes from you so that we can live life as you intended and be lights to those who are living it in darkness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, every week we have an outline for you for the message inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out and follow along. We say on that outline to find meaning in life. God has provided, first of all, a wise teacher. The author of this book of Ecclesiastes is not identified by name, but verse 1 of chapter 1 says he was the son of David, king of Jerusalem. So that description, coupled with the content of the book, identifies him as none other than King Solomon. Under Solomon's leadership, Israel achieved heights of greatness that it had not seen even under King David, and it will not see again until King Jesus establishes the kingdom at his return. Solomon's fame had spread throughout the world. He was renowned for his amazing wisdom and his fabulous wealth. And his wisdom was bestowed upon him by the Lord at his, Solomon's, request. Shortly after Solomon became king, the Bible says the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And God said, ask whatever you want me to give you. What would you ask for? If God said, ask me for whatever you want. God says, I will give to you whatever you ask for. 
Solomon answered, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. And the Lord said, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never so that so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. As a result, Solomon displayed extraordinary wisdom, which in the Bible is the ability to apply God's truth to the circumstances that God puts before us. The Hebrew word translated wisdom in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, is the word hokmon. It means skillful living that achieves its purpose. It's used of those who would take flax and turn it into linen, which in turn was used to make garments for the priest in the temple. It was also a word used in the Old Testament of those who cut trees for use by the carpenters of the tabernacle. So one displaying wisdom uses his skill to achieve the purpose for which his task was given by God. Solomon had an exceeding ability to do this as king of Israel. And that it's this one who now in this book speaks to us of life and of meaning and of purpose. But I wonder how well we are able to hear him. And I wonder that because we have so very many voices that clamor for our attention today. Did you know, friends, we live at a unique time in history in which the vehicles of communication are many and they are so diverse with the advances in technology that it's hard not to be overwhelmed and to have trouble deciding which voices to give ear and which to ignore. If we're not careful, then even the voice of God's servants can become to us just another voice vying for our attention. So that to us, it's heard just like yada, yada, yada. Blah, blah, blah. I wonder how many of you go through that like even right now. It's really, it's, it's an important matter. Do you have the ability to fix your attention on what's important to hear, on what God says? These words that we're going to look at today and in the weeks ahead are different. They are words of the wisest of men. And though he was still fallible like all people are, his words were superintended by the God of heaven so that they provide an accurate perspective on life as it truly is. This lover of wisdom, Solomon, this godly philosopher, and that's what philosophy means, love of wisdom. He assembles us to hear his wisdom because according to verse one, his title is you see there in verse one. He is the teacher. And the Hebrew word for teacher is koheleth, which refers to one who calls the assembly together. It pictures a wise one who calls an assembly of students around him to teach them. In fact, that's why the book is named Ecclesiastes, because it comes from the Greek word for assembly, ecclesia. We translate it in the New Testament church or assembly. Over the next several weeks, we'll be gathered in assembly, as it were, at the feet of the teacher, Solomon, to, to learn about the large questions of life that few people have the wisdom to even ask, let alone seek the answers to. Why am I here? Who am I? What am I meant to do? Where am I going? 
Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. Let's imbibe his wisdom and be instructed. So I say in your outline, to find meaning in life, God has provided a wise teacher. But secondly, he's also provided an experienced teacher, an experienced teacher. Some of you have heard me say over the years that experience is the best teacher. That's not unique to me, but then I add this, especially if it's someone else's experience. Experience is the best teacher. But it's really the best when it's someone else's experience. We foolishly think we have to learn by making our own mistakes. When in fact, we can learn by the mistakes that others have already made. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon teaches in large part by negative example. By what not to do. Although he also provides instruction on what we should do. That's because he experienced the negative effects of failing to live with purpose for portions of his life. So what kind of experience did Solomon have? I say in your outline, he was, first of all, worldly. He knows whereof he speaks in this book, not just intellectually, but experientially. He had actually done just about everything, much of it not good. By the time he wrote Ecclesiastes, he has a storehouse of wisdom that's culled from his many experiences in the world, and he shares those with us in this book. Ecclesiastes is the last of the three biblical books that Solomon wrote. He wrote Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And Jewish tradition is probably correct that he wrote Song of, Song of Solomon when he was young. Proverbs in the maturity of his middle years and Ecclesiastes toward the close of his life. Song of Solomon is about the wonders of young romantic love. Proverbs is a book of wise sayings addressing all areas of life from relationships to work to pleasure to money and many other things. But the last of Solomon's books, Ecclesiastes, contains the reflections of an older man who has seen and experienced all that life has to offer. And he gives us his evaluation of those experiences and what they can teach us about life and its meaning. At times, what Solomon is going to show us is shocking. At other times, it's depressing. But it's always insightful and always helpful for those who come with open hearts and minds. He speaks in this book of money and sex and power because in his position he had access to all of them in ample supply. Solomon could truly say, been there, done that for just about everything in life. This is the one, the teacher, who gathers us to sit and learn from his experiences. The experienced teacher that God has provided for us is worldly. He knew the world. He had experienced the world. And he was, I say in your outline, wealthy. He was worldly and he was wealthy. We've seen that God told Solomon that he'd give him whatever he asked for and Solomon requested wisdom. God granted that request. But in the verse right after that, God says this. I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime 
you will have no equal among kings. No king on earth was richer than Solomon. We're going to see later in this series that he had gold and silver in unimaginable quantities. And he built massive and opulent buildings and beautiful gardens. His fame spread throughout the world so that the Queen of Sheba in Africa heard of him and she wanted to see it with her own eyes. And so she came and she visited. And after doing so, here's what she said. The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, she says, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report that I heard. We sometimes dream, you know, if I had a million dollars. And then we think of what we do. I'd buy you a fur coat, but not a real fur coat because that's cruel. We think of what we would do, but, but Solomon didn't have to dream because he had that and much, much more. He could have anything that money could buy, and he did. But in this book, he tells us what it bought him so that we can stop dreaming and stop becoming discontent. The experienced teacher that God has provided for us is one who knew the world and experienced the world. He was worldly. He was wealthy. And he was also, I say in your outline, powerful. For most of human history, monarchs ruled in a system which in Latin is rex lex. That means the king is the law. It was a scandal in our time when Richard Nixon told interviewer David Frost, quote, when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. Such thinking for us is scandalous because, thankfully, we live after the time of the Reformation when Rex Lex, the king is law, was reversed to Lex Rex, the law is king. In America, we have no king and no man is above the law. But in Solomon's day, there were no checks and balances. The word of the king was law. What he said was done and done immediately. Most of us are familiar with the saying, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Solomon had absolute power, and though he had no limitations on what he could do, he still had the limitations of his own sin nature, which at times corrupted him. Because of Solomon's varied experiences, because of his amazing wealth and his unchecked power, he had the resources to live life more fully than anyone else in all that this world has to offer. It meant that he was experienced, and he shares the lessons learned from that vast experience in this book for us. So to find meaning in life, God has provided a wise teacher and an experienced teacher. And a third thing in your outline. He's also given us a realistic message. The summary of Solomon's message is found in verse 2 of chapter 1. 
meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Now, the Hebrew word for meaningless is hevel. It's used four times in verse 2 alone, and it's used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, so it's obviously an important theme. This word hevel means breath, wind, or vapor. But it's used throughout the Old Testament as a figure of speech with different nuances, and they're all related to this idea of vapor or, or, or something fleeting and impossible to grasp. This negative assessment of life is from the perspective that is earthbound, that does not see life as God sees it and as he wants us to see it. So the conclusion that life is meaningless is really true. And this is important. It's true if only seen from under the sun. That's a phrase used throughout Ecclesiastes. Many of you may be familiar with the statement from this book. There is nothing new. What? Under the sun. And that's just one of several uses of that phrase, under the sun. So looking at life from under the sun, it does indeed look meaningless, like a vapor that you can't grasp or control or even figure out. And that's the case for several reasons. Let me give you some of those. From under the sun, everything is temporary. James asked, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Like a vapor that appears for a moment, according to James, nothing lasts. The problem of meaninglessness is caused by the fact that nothing lasts. You think about everything that we that we have, our jobs, our possessions, our relationships. None of them last. So even the relatively few fleeting moments of happiness we're able to have are tainted by the knowledge that life itself cannot last. This word hevel or vapor is used in Psalm number 62 where God is presented as a rock and a fortress. But in contrast to that, there is the temporality of humanity. Psalm 62 says, he, God, is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. But then it says, surely the lowborn are but a breath. That's the word hevel. The highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Again, hevel. We all need someone or something solid to lean on. But the truth of the matter is we and all people are temporary and unreliable. So from under the sun, everything is temporary. And our achievements are ultimately empty. One of the strong uses of this word hevel communicates the idea of being futile or of no effect. Some of you are familiar with the King James famous translation of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 2. Vanity of vanities. That is, everything is vain. Everything is is ultimately empty. And if we consider the significance of our lives in light of all time, what real difference do our efforts make? We try to preserve those efforts with museums and memoirs and buildings and with names of especially influential people placed on those. 
But whole civilizations who've done exactly the same thing, hear this, they lie in ruins under rubble. And one day we too will be gone and forgotten. So from under the sun, it's reasonable to ask, what's the point? From under the sun, everything is temporary. And what we do is ultimately empty. And further, it's unsatisfying. We pretend there's meaning and satisfaction in things like our homes and our work. And others try to find satisfaction in pleasure or so-called success. But those great theologians, the Rolling Stones, had it right. I can try and I can try and I can try, but I can't get no satisfaction. Looking at life from under the sun only means that it's impossible to get our arms around the significance of the events of our lives. The twists and the turns, the mishaps, the injustices. All of it make it impossible for us to get our minds around life. It's like an enigma, a mystery, a puzzle for us. There are things, try as we may, we can never understand. For example, we're going to see that Solomon pondered the presence of injustice in the world. There are those who are righteous and who are dealt with unjustly, and those who are unrighteous that go free. I think of the O.J. Simpson trial, for example. So this is a realistic message. And the perspective, though, is confined to what's under the sun. And from that perspective, under the sun, life is meaningless. But Solomon not only tells us that life is meaningless, but he goes further to underscore the point. All of life is meaningless. When verse 2 says, meaningless, meaningless, it's literally this. It's literally meaningless of meaninglesses. That's the way it is in Hebrew. That's why in the King James it says vanity of vanities. It's literally meaningless of meaninglesses. That is, of all the things that are meaningless, this is the most meaningless. You know, I I do deep study for this stuff, so let me give you an example from Peanuts and Charlie Brown. Lucy, on one occasion, says to Charlie Brown, of all, no, I think it was Linus, of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. In Hebrew, they would emphasize something by repeating it in the plural. So, for example, the Bible speaks of the inner compartment of the temple as the holy of holies. That is, this is the most holy place on earth. So, meaningless of meaninglesses means That life is the most meaningless thing imaginable. But Solomon goes even further to emphasize this by repeating the exact same phrase in verse 2. The NIV says utterly meaningless, but it's actually in Hebrew the exact same phrase, meaningless, meaningless. But since it's repeated as a way of emphasizing it even more, the translators say utterly meaningless to capture that emphasis. And if that's still not enough to make the point, Solomon adds this at the end of verse 2, everything is meaningless. Now Solomon's day was much like ours. Wealth, self-sufficiency, religious and moral decline. 
Solomon says he saw injustice to the poor, crooked politicians, incompetent leaders, guilty people allowed to go free only to commit more crime, materialism, and everyone was longing for the good old days. Does that sound and feel familiar to you? These are the realities that should awaken us from the slumber that all of our advantages today have brought upon us. Meaningless like a vapor is life from under the sun. No matter how much wealth or education or prestige we might have or want, life without God is utterly futile. So then, are we left with nothing but despair? Thankfully, the answer is no. Because to find meaning in life, God has provided this realistic message of life viewed from under the sun. But finally, I say in your outline, he's also giving us, given us a hopeful message. Again, he's looking at life in this book primarily from life under the sun. That's an expression that's going to be used 30 times in the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. He's telling us that he's giving us a view of life that's limited. It's earthly. It's bound up only with the viewpoint, the vantage point of this world. So as he looks at it, his horizons are narrow. It's a view that sees the events of life only from man's viewpoint. It's a view that sees the events of life only from man's perspective. So that means that his viewpoint was realistic. But that realism about life under the sun is applied differently. Hear this. It's applied differently to the unbeliever and to the believer. For the unbeliever, indeed, life is meaningless. For the unbeliever, in Ecclesiastes, we find a realistic view of life where Solomon paints with dark colors. If you're left with the limited point of view of this world, then you're left with Hevel, with meaninglessness. And that's why the philosophers of our day and age have spiraled into despair. Some of you know that in history there was a movement a few centuries ago called the Enlightenment where mankind was full of himself and he was excited about the future. But as reality has set in, the optimism of the Enlightenment has crashed and burned. So American poet Carl Sandburg said, Life is like an onion. You peel it off one layer at a time, and sometimes you weep. A notable philosopher has said, As man is nothing more than a germ on a cog in the great cosmic machine, for the unbeliever, the person whose life is not linked to God through Christ, all you have left is meaninglessness. But then there is for the believer. And there, too, there is a sense in which life is meaningless. There's a sense in which we have this limited perspective, and Ecclesiastes gives us a realistic portrayal of that. The teacher's viewpoint is true even for the believer. Now, it's sad that sometimes we as believers think that we need to make an unrealistic world in order to be Christians. We sometimes pretend that bad things don't happen to God's people. If you just have enough faith, bad things won't happen. If you just have your life right, you'll have all the answers. That's simply not the case. That's not the view of life and not even the Christian life that the Bible gives us. Solomon was a realist. So he's correct when he says life under the sun is meaningless. It's not to say there's no ultimate meaning in life for the believer. But it is to say that all that we can see, all that's within the confines of our horizon, is unreliable, it's fleeting, 
It's incomprehensible many times. So even for the believer, life is meaningless, but for the believer, there's an added dimension. There is another point of view, another perspective that transcends earth. Solomon is looking at life under the sun. There is a vantage point, though, that's from above. There's a viewpoint from heaven, a perspective from above. And it's only from above that all can be seen clearly. It's only from above that that which is incomprehensible to us begins to take shape and begins to make sense. And this view from above shines through in the book of Ecclesiastes as Solomon frequently punctuates what he says about life with a repeated call to recognize that there's a God and not just any God, but the true and living God of heaven, the God whom we worship, who is on the throne. And though we cannot always make sense of our lives because of a limited perspective, he sees from above. He's at work and he is gracious. An anonymous poet compared our lives to a tapestry. You know, a tapestry has a top and a bottom. And if you look at it from underneath, no matter how beautiful it is on top, underneath you see nothing but a tangled mess of threads. It's incomprehensible if you're just looking at it from underneath. You look underneath and you say, how can this thing be a work of art? How can this thing be beautiful? And we look at our lives and we see a tangled mess of circumstances. And often there's nothing in that tapestry but dark threads. And we say, how can my life be beautiful? What is God doing? And the poet reminds us that there is the view from above. And there's the view from below. He says, not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He works steadily. Often he weaves sorrow, and I, in foolish pride, forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. The view from below, from under the sun, concludes meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. But thanks be to God, there is another perspective. And because of that, I want you to know that a life that's not centered on God, a life that does not have his perspective, can never be anything but meaningless. But in God, life can be truly satisfying and meaningful. And every person was made to have that. Now, how do you have that? We're going to pray in just a moment. And as we do, if you have never come to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that. And here's how you do that. Realize that you are a sinner like we all are. And that has distorted your perspective on everything. That's what sin does to all of us. But recognize that God has acted to make that right. He has sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for your sin To live the life that you and I were to live. To offer you a relationship with God through him. You repent of your sin. 
Lord, I want to go your way, not my way. I want to see life as you see it, not as I can see it through this limited perspective. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. You do that as we pray, as we bow in just a moment. You say from your heart to God, I realize that I'm a sinner groping through life in the darkness. I need you. I need your Holy Spirit. I need you to forgive me and to save me, to rescue me. The Lord promises to do that. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he will begin his work in you so that you start to see things now differently, not from this limited time-bound and earth-bound perspective, but from a biblical perspective, from above. Your take-home truth in your outline is this. God has provided a realistic perspective on life so that we can really live. Let's bow together. Our Father, thank you for giving us this book in your word to give us this realistic view of life. Realistic for all of us that live in a fallen world. We are all affected by living in a sin-cursed world. We contribute to it and we experience the contributions of others in it. So help us to be, even as Christians, realistic people about the difficulties of life in a fallen world. Lord, we thank you that you lift our gaze above the perspective under the sun and we're able to see from above the sun, from your perspective, because you have told us in your word the way it's supposed to be and how we can look at it and what you're doing to redeem it. So thank you, Lord, for that renewed perspective that gives us hope and gives us joy in the journey. Oh, Lord, we ask you to bring some to yourself in this sacred moment. We pray that they have seen that they are living lives that are ultimately futile apart from you. May they come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ to bring glory and honor to you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.